Good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, glad you braved this, uh, all made it through this week. I went in a crazy week. We went from sub-zero Arctic cold to needing a boat to get around yesterday. I mean, it was like, what on earth? Uh, I, I told first service, I'm starting to feel a little old though. Um, this week, I had, I said something came out of my mouth that um, I don't think I've ever said before and harkened right on back to the days of my grandfather. Uh, My grandfather grew up with me and uh, he, he, for 18 years of my life, he lived in our basement, kind of in an in-laws quarters. And I remember oftentimes when we would miss school because of snow, like my kids missed school because of cold this week, uh, what would he say? Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. When I was your age, we walked to school. Uphill both ways, um, barefoot sometimes, and three foot of snow. And, and so this week, I found myself saying the same thing to my kids. What on earth? I, I remember when I was a kid, we never got off school for five degrees of, of weather. So again, glad you braved the week. Good week. Wasn't here with you last week. Um, deeply want to thank Gerald Graham, our elder, um, who I didn't get to hear it yet. I apologize. Our message isn't up online, but I've heard all kinds of good things about it. So heard he did a great job. Um, opening up the word of God last week. So uh, thanks, uh, Gerald, for doing that. Uh, I won't embarrass him. He is here this morning in this service. So with that said, uh, Gerald continued us in our series, Change, which we started two weeks ago. Uh, if you have a bulletin, you'll, you'll see the title there. It's up on the screen. It has a little D in parenthesis because what we think about is uh, this is a time of year when resolutions kind of are floating around or have been floating around. And some of us just pull our list out from last year and let's just renew that list because we never really got that one down. And some of us start new things and habits we want to kick and maybe some more time you want to spend with kids or family or maybe uh, whatever it might be for you. But we, the reason we put the little, uh, the little asterisk around that D there is because we said, you know, we don't just want to change. We want to be changed. And so what is it that it takes to really change? I mean, just so we can look back and we can stop just pulling the same list out every year and renewing um, that commitment. And so one of the things we've talked about, uh, week one, we talked about discipline. What role self-control and discipline plays into this? And in our culture, we kicked around that if you're like me, I fall prey to this at times in our culture where at times we begin to think that freedom comes by casting off constraints. Uh, but actually, scriptures, and I think even psychologists and good thinkers understand that freedom, the freer person in life is actually the person that disciplines themselves. And so discipline, uh, freedom comes in discipline. And then we talked about if you're going to change, and really change. Um, here at Bethany, one of the principles that we really hold to is we call it kind of a keystone habit or a key and a keystone habit is that one thing. If you're going to change one thing, instead of changing four things, pick one thing. And then what often happens when you change that one domino effect that kind of kicks out through all the others. And you find change across the board by changing one. And at Bethany, one of the things we could grow spiritually, and I think it leads to change across is to do what we call a quiet time. Now, if you're new to church, that may be, what's a quiet time? I'm just sitting around and be quiet, but it's kind of that time of intentional reading your Bible and praying. And as Gerald talked about last week, it's not just reading your Bible for the sake of checking off the list, but really encountering and getting to know the living creator God of the universe. So this morning, we're going to continue in that discussion, and we're going to move from kind of talking about reading your Bible to this next one and prayer. Uh, and talking about what is prayer, how do we pray, and the next week we're going to really wrap that up, um, kind of bring an exclamation point and push into some areas where I think we really struggle with prayer. 
Uh, but this morning, kind of get it moving. I remember vividly my first experience with what we call a quiet time, a disciplined, structured time of, of just intentionally reading the Bible and praying to encounter and get to know God. It came when I was in uh, a Bible institute in upstate New York. I had graduated high school, taken a year and a half off to kind of figure life out. And through that time, um, had kind of come to a place where, though I grew up in a Christian home and I went to a Christian school up to eighth grade and knew all about Jesus and the message of Jesus and the message of Jesus bringing us to God, it wasn't until that year and a half out of high school that I really kind of made that personal, I believe, and really uh, went after that. So I decided to go to this Bible school. Now, this Bible school, I came in as a, what they call a January student. The students start, uh, it's, it's just one year roughly 900 kids that go from September around to August. And uh, so I'm coming in, they have two enrollment periods, September and then January. And I'm coming in January. There's only about 40 of us that come in to the 900 bunch in the middle of the year. So I get there, I have no idea what's going on. Um, and just kind of trying to figure it out as I go. And one of the things I figured out real quick is they start every single day with what's called a quiet time. It's time that is structured on their calendar that's set aside that every student is to sit down at their desk, read the Bible and pray. The heart behind it is so that when you graduate, you, after a year of doing that, you just kind of naturally, it's a discipline you've learned and you carry it through life. So my first experience of this, I sit down. Get out my Bible, get my journal out. They give you a little journal, and I do it, and I'm done. I mean, I shut the thing up, and I'm like, man, look at the time, five minutes. That's awesome. I, you know, class starts, and so I hop up, and I'm thinking I got all these new students to meet and some girls there I kind of notice in my day of registration. I like to get to know. I'm really impressed. So I get out the ironing board. I start ironing my clothes, and I'm all excited. And then the RA, the resident assistant, you know, if you've been to college, you know that big, bad RA that comes around and polices all the rules, shows up and says, Nagel. I'm like, yeah, what are you doing? getting ready for the day. I mean, what are you doing? I'm nice to see you. Good morning. And he's like, he's like, Hey, you got to hold, you got to be at your desk for half an hour, half an hour. Are you kidding me? So what do you do for half an hour? He says, well, read your Bible and pray. I said for half an hour. I mean, some of you relate to that, right? Some of you are like, man, to get two minutes in. You're like, so I sit back down and for the next month or so I sit there for half an hour and I'll be honest. Here's what I did. I just, I did my thing, got done in three, four, five minutes. And I just stare at the wall. I'm like, what do I do now? What do I, and it was hard for me. Now, 17 or so years later, uh, it, is, it is a natural thing for me to do. It's a part of my life. And now, half an hour is almost too short for me. I push for 45 minutes now is really kind of my chunk of time. Now, so I've kind of grown into that. But there's one area. See if you relate to this. There's one area of that time that struggles more than, more than the other. Reading my Bible, I find to be somewhat, I won't call it easy, but it, it kind of flows. It kind of fits my personality. Some of you have gotten to know me, maybe how I'm out here. I'm an introvert by nature. So I love just kind of pulling away all by myself and reading and thinking. I'm cognitive. I'm a cognitive processor, uh, thinker. So I love to just think and process and study and do all that stuff Gerald talked about. I love it. But when it comes to prayer, I struggle immensely with prayer. Immensely. Prayer is hard for me. It seems strange. It seems like... Why do you pray? Doesn't God kind of know what's going to happen anyway? Doesn't he already know? I mean, and not only that, but I'll be honest, you know, when everyone talks about the successful marriages that they have and you always hear, what's the, what's the number one thing that holds your marriage together? And you always hear couples, Christian couples say, well, we pray together. Tanya and I struggle to pray together. We'll do it at times. It's hit and miss. We don't have a faithful prayer time together. I just, prayer is one of those things. It's like, it's hard. It's very hard. Now I'm not talking. Here's what I'm talking. When I say prayer, I'm not talking. I think we all do this. I'm not talking about the, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble prayer. We all do that, right? The bill's coming due and you can't pay it. 
the illness hit, your kids are missing school because they're throwing up, or you're going go down a list of stuff that made life really hard for you. And in those moments, you think to pray. You cry out to God. I'm not talking, I'm talking about disciplined, structured time where you push yourself to sit down and be audacious and be bold with the creator God of the universe and look him in the face and say, God, I am here to petition you to move heaven and earth in that area. I expect you to do big, crazy things in my life and in this world and this life. And God, I'm here to meet you. I'm here as a sinful man to sit in your presence and talk to you and ask of you to do this. That's hard. I find that very, very hard. So I've journeyed, I've journeyed in this. And so this morning I'm going to share some things that I'm still journeying in. I'm going to share some things that even in the last four years of walking with a number of you, you have taught me. I'm going to share things that I've learned even from that schooling experience on, uh, and things that have kind of, that when I'm going to share kind of one principle that when I grasp this one prayer kind of naturally happens is what I find. So the first one is this, I want to state this. God cares for me. Put your name in there. If we don't believe this principle, you will not pray. I will not pray. This comes out of 1 Peter 5, 7. I'm not going to turn there. Maybe you want to turn there maybe later this week. Um, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon me. Some translations say, cast your anxieties, your concerns upon me. Because the word because, it's like this reason you do this is because he, referring to God, cares for you. So we understand that God in heaven cares for me. I am more likely then to come before him, a sinful person to a holy God and sit in his presence or kneel in his presence, whatever posture you take when you pray and cry out to him. So that's the first one. Now, flowing from that comes this then. So I shouldn't insult him with my small thinking and safe living. This, you say, well, what's the connection of that? How does he cares for me? That last statement looks kind of, uh, what, what in the world? What ends up happening a lot is my prayers. If you journal your prayers, just maybe do it for a week or two weeks. Write down the things that you're praying about. I find that often they're safe. They're secure. They're within your known world. They aren't seldom pushing the limits. Most of them I find, here's what I found with, when I did this exercise, when I journaled my prayers, I found that a lot of them are things that I could actually do with a little self-discipline or help from a counselor. I didn't need God to accomplish them. In other words, they're safe and secure. Sure, it'd be nice if God would show up and make it easier for me, so I'll pray about it. But a lot of my prayers are not things that are wildly outside of my control. They're things that are not huge, and they they aren't trying to seek the heart of God and then follow him willingly. They're things that are safe, secure, and kind of within the context of my own little world. So when I understand God cares for me, I'm going to step out, I'm going to risk, and I'm going to do some bigger things. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. If you're new to the Bible, skeptic of the Bible, welcome. Uh, So glad you're here. Very glad you're here. It's a scary place to be for someone who's new to the Bible. We admit that, we acknowledge that, we understand that. So hope you find this to be a comfortable, safe place for you to explore who God is. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, see me afterwards. I will get, put one in your hands or the little desk that's out there in the middle of that large lobby. Grab someone there and they too uh, could put one in your desk. Or grab your smartphone. We have Wi-Fi. Um, log on there and find a Bible and uh, you find Luke there. Luke is three-quarters of the way through your Bible. Again, I'd like to do this for any of you that are maybe new to the Bible 
Bible. We're trying to figure the Bible out. Uh, Luke is three quarters of the way through. And um, some of you heard me say this before, but this isn't for you. It's for everyone else in the room who, who's trying to figure the Bible out. Luke is a guy who is a doctor, very intelligent, logical thinker. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what Luke sits in. They're people who explored Jesus, watched Jesus, lived with Jesus, interacted with Jesus, and then sat down and wrote about him. We call them the Gospels because it's the good news of Jesus. They're just stories of Jesus. Luke was a guy, he was not, as some of you heard of Jesus' disciples, a disciple's a follower. There were followers of Jesus. There were 12 of them. Luke was a guy who was not in that inner circle. So what he did is he hung out with a guy named Paul who planted a lot of churches after Jesus went back to heaven all over the Middle East. Luke hung out with that guy, Paul, and Luke explored the claims of Jesus from a logical, skeptical heart and pushed in and and just tested everything and talked to eyewitnesses and interviewed. And then he sat down and he wrote about what he learned, fully convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God. And Jesus has, in fact, come to seek and to save people, bringing them into relationship with God. So that's what he does. So he writes about it. And so we find, uh, I love Luke because it's very logical, progress, and he's really coming at it from the heart of a skeptic. So if you're a skeptic, uh, Luke is going to be a great book for you to uh, process through. Now, verse, chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Jesus did this a lot. Jesus prayed a lot. And we're going to talk about this in a little later on. He prayed regularly. By himself, he prayed. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, a disciple, again, is a follower, someone who's committed their life to learning the ways of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. The disciple said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, probably referring to John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. So he says, like, it's like, hey, Jesus, we've been hanging out with you, and we see you do this thing called prayer a lot, but you don't really ever tell us about it. You don't really ever bring us into it, in other words. I mean, you kind of go off privately and do this thing, but we're not really included. So could you teach us how to do this? I mean, John did, right? So why don't you teach us? So, okay, Jesus says, I'll teach you. Verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, now this is the content of what to pray. We're going to come back to this. We're going to read through it and come back to it. Um, We're going to look at some of the heart and some of the practice of prayer before the content. But he starts out with the content. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. That's what's known as, some of you know it as what? The Lord's Prayer, right? Some of you have grown up maybe in a different um, home where you, religious setting, where you quoted that before a meal, and that's just kind of what you said. Now, verse 5, then it says this, then he said to them, he's going to tell a story. Suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Verse seven, then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Verse eight, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Crazy story. Put it in our modern context. See, in this early first century, when they went to bed, you went to bed. It didn't have these nice five-bedroom homes like we have today. Three-bedroom, four-bedroom. They had one room. So dad and mom laid down, and then the kids laid down. I mean, so it was, can you imagine this? I mean, I'm told I snore. I'd keep the whole family up. I mean, it would be a miserable home uh, night's sleep for all of us. Uh, but there they are. They're all laying down, and a knock comes on the door. The knock comes on the door from someone he knows. He, the text calls him a friend. Now, you've already laid down. The kids are in bed, right? 
Now, the reason he's coming is because this guy had some people, just unexpected out-of-town guests show up. They're traveling through. They stop. They say, we need a place to stay. Because in that first century, you didn't just go traveling at night. You, you wanted to get off the roads at night. So there he says, can I come stay with you? And we were passing through town. And the guy's like, you know, what would you say? Oh, sorry, dude. <laughs> no, door's shut. So he said, yeah, come on in. Well, then he realizes after the commit, I have nothing to feed him for breakfast. I'm not going to be a good host. I have no bread. So he runs down the street to his buddy's house and knocks on the door. He's kind of like, have you ever pulled your phone out? You think of something, you got to tell someone. You just have to ask them or tell them. You rip your phone out. It's at night and, and you're like, oh, shoot, it's 1030. Should I call him? You ever wrestled with this? What is the official time not to disturb someone at night? You ever wrestled with that? I wrestle with these kind of simple things in life. But you sit there and you think, well, should I call him? You'll call him if it's a big deal. You'll, you'll dial, you'll call. But if not, you kind of set it aside. Well, that's kind of what he wrestles with. So he goes to the door, he knocks on the door, and, and the guy that receives him is like, no, no, no. My kids are in bed. But what does Jesus say? Why is he ultimately going to answer him? Is it because he loves him? Is it because they're friends? What's he say? It's because he's bold. Same reason why you would get up and give it to him. Because you'd think just like me, dude, come on, man. Wait in the morning and go to Walmart or... You know, they're open 24-7. It's just a little ways further. Just head down the road. I mean, you'd think the same thing I do. Don't be a judge. Don't be a hater here. I mean, just, it's like, come on. So he gets up because he's bold. So that's the first thing I'd say with prayer. Here's what I've learned through prayer, just in my journey. Asking is vulnerable and bold. Very, very vulnerable. See if you don't relate to this. Don't we as people have a tendency to judge those in need. We have a strong town. I don't know why we do this. We look at other people. And the thing I find interesting is I will look at your weakness and judge your weakness, but often I'm judging your weakness and your need through my strength. Come on. And on top of that, if you've grown up in this area, Lancaster County, in eastern, northeastern region of the United States, you have the Puritan work ethic stamped into you. And we have this thinking, it's like, listen, you are the result of your choices, good or bad. So why should I help you? Because you're probably in that place because you have made some very poor decisions. And we look at people who have to ask for help as weak. We think, well, make better decisions. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Work harder. Be smarter. I don't have an obligation to help you. Now, we judge people in that position. What ends up happening then, in my assessment, Brene Brown says this too. I want to read this quote in a minute. But what ends up happening then, since we judge others who ask, we then are likely to not ask ourselves. Do you know why? Because I'm judging you when you ask. I'm judging myself when I ask. Therefore, I'm not like this. So when I go to ask someone for help, including the creator God of the universe, probably all the more the creator God of the universe, I'm being very vulnerable. I'm stepping forward into a position where I could be judged. I could be looked at as weak. I could be looked down upon. I could be all kinds of things. And likely I'm judging myself for even having to ask in the first place. Brene Brown, who's an author, uh, writer, sociologist, professor. I don't know her where she's at with Jesus. Um, well, she doesn't really ever say in any of her stuff, uh, but she says this, I think it's just profound until we can receive with an open heart. We are never really giving with an open heart. When we attach judgment to receiving help, we knowingly or unknowingly attach judgment to giving help. We attach this word judgment to giving and receiving help regularly. 
And so it makes asking for something very, very hard. Therefore, it becomes very bold and very vulnerable. So that's the first principle. If you're really going to ask, if you're really going to push in, I think it's important to understand it's a bold thing to do. It's a vulnerable thing to do. Now look at the next section, verse 9. So as it take boldness, there's something else here. It's, it takes some, uh, look at verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now this is a promise. This is not some wishful thinking. This is Jesus saying, this will happen. If you ask, you're going to get. If you seek, you're going to find. If you knock, the door is going to be open. It's a promise. It's an absolute promise. So I'd say it this way. Um, ask, seek, and knock, and your dad is waiting to give, find, and open. The dad concept comes from, look at the next verse. Look at verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? One of the things I've found, I don't like to ask for help. Number one, because I sit in judgment of myself. But number two, I find that if you have to come to me because I've asked, I ask this, and this, this is not healthy. I just want to state straight up front. Do you really love me then? See, I've done this in places that's gotten my marriage in trouble. I kind of live this life with, I want you to show initiative. I want you to see that I'm in need. I want you to recognize my need and then respond out of the goodness of your heart. And then I'll receive it. You know, that's just unhealthy. And what ends up happening is I'll walk in to places when I'm sick or when I'm struggling to pay the bills and I'm in a group of people to pray and I'll act like a, a woe is me little pity party. And all I'm doing is I'm hoping one of you says, oh, Adam's really in need. I'm going to help Adam this week. That's just unhealthy. But most of us do it at some level or another. And God, I think, often says, listen, when I watch Jesus heal people, so often he doesn't heal them until they ask him. God says, ask. Put your place in that vulnerable place and ask. The verse that I'd go to is James 4.2. You don't have, the second part of the verse, you don't have because you don't ask. God's saying, listen, ask. I'd tell some of you, ask. Be bold and ask. Now, this father thing, I think back to my growing up years. I'm a father. I have kids. I love to give gifts to my kids. I love meeting the needs of my kids. I'm a sinful father. My dad, I grew up learning this from him. My dad, um, we always, I grew up poor. And I tell people, you know, some people grow up poor and they you know, hear the testimony. I never knew it. Well, guess what? I knew it. I was ashamed of what I grew up in. My home was this 250 some year old home. Everyone's going, wow, that's awesome. It was not awesome. It had, it needed a, I mean, I think it needed a bulldozer is what it really needed. It was, it, it had the character there, but it had a lot, needed a lot of work. I mean, horsehair plaster and it's fallen off. I mean, there were large sections of the wall where the horsehair plaster is missing. You're looking at the lath. I mean, it was just a scary place to be. I was very ashamed of having friends over to that, to where I grew up, to sleep over to, for birthday parties, for anything. So it's more. one thing I remember very vividly, though, is my parents, when Christmas time came around, they always wanted to give me and my three sisters a special Christmas. And they, every Christmas, they especially wanted to give us at least one gift that we ask for. Very vividly remember this. I approached, I was 10 or 11 years old, 
and I was with my dad at Martin's Bike Shop. Christmas was approaching, and I look over, and there sits this high-end purple. Purple's my favorite color, if you didn't know that. I know, man points have just flown out the window again. I love purple. So here sits this purple. It's like this light from heaven just was coming down on it. It's like, it's like, Adam, you have to have me. It's this purple Schwinn high-end BMX freestyle bike. Now, this thing had one of those rotors on the front. You could spin the thing and the cables wouldn't get all wrapped around. It had a roller on the seat so you could flip it upside down and ride it upside down. It had pegs on the front fork so you could, I don't know what you did with those. And it had pegs on the back fork because, again, I don't, because see, here's the deal. I never used that thing that way. But I asked for this for Christmas. I asked for it. I said, Dad, I'd love to have this bike. Now, I knew that it was, I remember looking at the price tag. I remember it was between four and $500. I remember being shocked. Oh, my goodness. But I ask. And it was a stretch, but I ask. Christmas morning, I come down, and I come walk, running into our living room, and there is in front of the tree this whole, it's about stacked like this high with a sheet over this hole. And here what they did is they pulled the sheet off underneath his bikes for my sisters and me. And at the end of the list is the purple Schwinn high-end freestyle BMX bike, the exact one I asked for. Now, it touched my heart. Now, here's the thing. You know what? I never used that bike once to do a trick. Not one time. I used to try really hard to go over jumps. I got about this high off the ground. I mean, it's, my dad could have thought when I asked for that. My dad, and he might have thought, he would have been wise to think, what does a chubby little boy want with a freestyle BMX bike anyway? Because all I did with that freestyle BMX bike was ride it. Well, he could have gone someplace and bought a really cheap bike if that's all. But, but he knew my heart. He knew what I wanted. And he went out and met the need. Now, if my dad were here today, my dad would be the first to tell you he's a sinner. He is a sinner. And if a sinful dad can look at the heart of a child and say, I want to bless my son with a good gift. The argument then is how much more does a holy, righteous, magnificent God look down and say, I want to bless my kids. It's amazing. So I love it. So it's just learn to, learn to ask. Go to him and talk to him. Be bold. What I want to do is um, want to come back and kind of talk about how do we pray now. Turn with me to Matthew. So if, if you followed that introduction earlier, Matthew would be back up a little bit. You're going to go through the book of Mark, and then you're going to hit the book of Matthew as you're working back towards the front of your Bible. Matthew chapter 6. What we really want to talk about now is how do I pray? So how do I do this thing? And Jesus gives some more instruction here in teaching on this, and I just want to kind of kick this around to kind of give us some how-tos, some practical, so you don't just hear this, oh, yeah, let's pray, but here's some real how to do it. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love, to stand, they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So the first principle, prayer is a private, first and foremost, is a private thing between you and God, not you and your friends, you and your wife, you and your husband, you and the church. It's between you and God. First and foremost, the foundation of prayer is something private. Jesus, you seldom ever find Jesus praying in public ever. He's always in private when he prays. 
He's always crying out to God when it's just him. Now, his disciples are usually close by and seeing it, but he doesn't have these big public prayer meetings. Now, look at the next verse. I think it kind of leads into the next principle. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. So don't need to get all wordy. Keep it simple. Simple. Remember my first vocational position in church. I was an associate pastor in Mifflin County. And the senior pastor gave me a role in the service where I was supposed to pray. I had the prayer in the service. So I'd come up on stage and I'd pray. I'm there about six months and he sits me down on our staff and he says, Adam, have you ever thought about how long you pray? No. <laughs> I do what I'm told to do and I sit down. I mean, what do you, he said, I really ask you to just, he said, just think about it. So I did. I went away. I started, I get people to stop watch. I time it. And I realized I was praying in the service anywhere between a minute and three and a half minutes was the time that I'd stand on a stage like this and pray. So I came back and I told him, I said, Doug, you know, I, yeah, I pray, you know, three and a half minutes. I think the average was somewhere around, was somewhere around three. And he said, Adam, I want to challenge you. I want to ask you why you pray that long. Now, first of all, I thought three minutes long. He goes, what I've learned, Adam, is those who pray wordy in public seldom pray in private. And what he didn't know, that pierced me like, I mean, it popped my bubble. He didn't even have to ask, do you struggle with prayer? He just assumed I do. And he could judge it by how I prayed publicly. He says, don't get all wordy. Along with that, he said to me, Adam, when you pray publicly, especially as a pastor, and you pray wordy, some of you, and I've done this at times, I confess. Some of you, have ever heard a pastor pray? It sounds like he's preaching a second sermon. Have you ever heard that? What this pastor said to me is, Adam, what you have done is you've hurt the people you care for because you've not given them a model to pray. They think now you've got to go to Bible school and have all your theology together and have everything together to, to pray. When prayer is just simply coming to God and in your language, simply saying, God, here it is. So he really challenged me. I also want to state this. I get asked a lot as a pastor, why don't you push prayer services more? And I'm not going to speak for our elders. And I'm not going to speak for Bethany Grace Fellowship Church as a whole. I'm speaking as Adam Nagel. I want to answer that question publicly. Here's why I don't. Public prayer, I find, is very dangerous. And what it does is a lot of times it pushes you to be a hypocrite. To show, we have this tendency, I want to look good to you. And so I will pray publicly. And man, I'll put the words together. So you look at me and think, man, Adam's got it together. And I don't ever find Jesus, ever find him doing a public prayer service. And when I look in the New Testament, I don't ever see public prayer services. I see small groups of close friends, husbands and wives, people who knew each other, the disciples getting together. Because what I find in those contexts, you can't give these flowery, empty words because they know me. (laughs) They're going to say, hey, Adam, come on, man. Why do you get all all hyper-spiritual on us? We know what's really going on in your life. How's it going? So I'm a big fan and a big proponent of prayer, a huge proponent of prayer. I just push very hard to keep it personal, first and foremost. And if you're going to go public, keep it to those close groups of friends, the friends that you walk and you do life with and cry out to God with those friends. 
Now, is there time for public prayer in services like this? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I don't want to put that down. I just, it's not, I think our heart is let's start private and be genuine and sincere before God and then include our closer friends as we grow in that. Now, the next thing, well, that said, there's my two cents on that. Next thing you see in this passage is the content. Look at verse nine, Matthew six, verse nine. This then is how you should pray. Now, very similar to Luke 11, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So I want to kind of work through what do I pray about? How do I pray? I think the first thing when you pray, when I pray, it's important to worship God. The first thing is that hallowed be your name. That's just simply worshiping God. So when you sit down to pray, it's just as simple as saying, God, thank you for who you are. Maybe just stop and focus on some aspect of God or attribute of his. It really means a lot to you lately. Or just say, God, just, it's just a worship of God is the first. If if you don't have worship in your prayer, I'd encourage you to add as an element of your prayer. Second thing is seek to do God's will and do it willingly. See, it says, if you look at the verse there, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. So stop right there. It's like, I should be praying regularly. God, what is your will? What is your desire? What do you want to accomplish on this earth? What are you trying to do? And pray about that. What role do you play in it? How, how can you, are you accomplishing it? Are you engaged with it? How's it going? Really just stop and pray about that. But then we've missed the second one on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? It's willingly, right? There's no sin in heaven. So what I find a lot of times is, is we do God's will, but a lot of us are doing it. I, I do it at times begrudgingly. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. But really pray, God, help me to do your will and help me to do it willingly. Really excited to be a part of it. Now, the third one then is ask for your daily needs. Now, we don't live in a third world. So most of us in this room do not fear the lack of bread, water, or proper nutrition. Most of us in this room. Some may, but most of us don't. We live in a first world. We have different problems. So we sometimes look at this and think, well, that, well I can check that one off the list. I mean, but we have other needs, don't we? In the culture in which we live. I mean, how about your kids? Do your kids have all the clothes they need to get to school? Do your kids have clothes? Tell them some, you know, do your, are you able to pay your electric bill? How about your home and your mortgage? How about praying so that you can really live within your means, your needs, be met, so then you can give money and leverage to, to give away? Or, or how about, and all kinds of just, it's okay to pray for things that you think you need and really talk to God about that. Now, the next one, um, and this is a big one. This one and the fifth one are huge. Request forgiveness from God. And then you're going to see, and I'll talk about them both, and then you're going to see forgive those who have wronged you. Now, if you, why I say this is big is because Jesus talks about prayer, how to pray. And then look at verse 14. It's like he lays all this out about prayer. And then he says this, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. So it's almost as if Jesus says, listen, I talk about all these ways to pray, but the one that captures Jesus' heart and mind is this forgiveness issue. And so I think the first one is forgive you your sins. And what I would say with this is keep a short count of sins. Really short. Let's just wait for the big stuff. I mean, stop every single time you pray. Say, God, man, 
Forgive me for stealing from my boss when I made those copies that I know I shouldn't have because they were for personal use. God, forgive me for that short word that I threw out to my kids that it wasn't major, but God, forgive me because it was not loving. It was not helpful for the moment. God, forgive me for that, that greedy thought that came in me when I walked in the store today and I just wanted all that stuff I saw. God, forgive me for Keep a short count of sins. Pastor Chris talked to me this week about an, a pastor in Arizona of a mega large church. Very successful church, pastor that loved Jesus. Who this week it was discovered he was having an affair with multiple women within the church. And every time I hear that, it just rips me apart. I'm like, ah. It's so and it's such a stark reminder that I'm human. And we all are. But it's also a stark reminder of this prayer request. Because what happens, every person I've ever talked to that has fallen big time comes back to this one. They just lose count of the sin in their life. And it starts like this. It may start like this. I've talked to some. This is where it starts. You know, you get on Facebook and down the side, you have your little ads and, and maybe an ad pops up for hosiery. So you're thinking, man, the holiday's coming up. I'd love to get my wife some nice. So you click on the link with the justification. I'm going to buy my wife something nice. You click on the link and you're just looking at pictures that, nah, they're not porn- pornographic, but boy, they're stirring some things in your heart. And so you watch it, you look at it, you click through some more images, all of the justification, I'm doing this for the right reasons. And you wrap it up, you're all done, you move on with your day, but you never stop and say, God, forgive me for the lust in my heart the minute I clicked on that image. So then guess what happens next time? Oh, that was kind of cool. I got away with that. That kind of worked. I didn't really suffer anything major. So next thing you know, you find another little link. You're Googling something. All of a sudden you see this link and you know you shouldn't. You click. And now the picture is the women aren't so covered or the men aren't so covered. And now you're looking at things that are, whoa. So what happens with sin is it starts little. It starts a little tiny seed that drops in the ground and it just crows. So I think this prayer request is huge to just stop and say today, I need the grace of God to survive. I need his forgiveness. I need to come back to who Jesus is in my life. And then the second one is forgive those who have wronged me. And I would say this, it's not just this one time, okay, forgive my wife, forgive my husband, the classmate, the friend that stuck me with a knife in the back. It's stopping and saying, God, I forgive them. And every time else it comes up, because sometimes it repeats itself. You think you forgave them, then you hear a song on the radio that reminds you, and you're, or you watch something online, or you see a commercial, or you talk with another friend, and all of a sudden it trickles back, and you hear. And so, again, I think it's very important to regularly keep that bitterness at check and stop and say, who is it in my life today that I need to deal with and extend the same grace that's been given to me by Jesus? Now, the final one, then, is... Um, keep me from temptation. That's very clear in all the texts. Keep me. So just pray, God, you know where you struggle. You know what your struggle is. God, keep me from this. And then the text, depending on what translation, I have to do something interesting with this last part of it. The NIV that I have, it says, deliver us from the evil one. Some of you have translations that say, simply say, deliver us from evil. So is he talking about Satan? But I think what he's really talking about is just evil in general. And the, and the falling into, so there's temptation. So for example, I struggle with overeating. I've shared that candidly. I'm not proud of it. It's something, gluttony is one of those things in this county that we, a lot of us struggle with and we don't ever really seem to put on the list of ugly sins. And, but it's an ugly sin. I struggle with it. So, um, 
So I may be tempted today to eat something, and I know I should be watching some football this afternoon. I don't feel real good, so I may kind of feel down, and I feel like I deserve it. I need a little extra love and tender care, and so I may t- take something. So I may pray this morning, God, help me to avoid the temptation. Now, deliver me from the evil that I've fallen into. Now, the reality is when you struggle with something, a lot of times it is life-dominating, And seldom do you find that it's just, boom, gone, just like that. Now, some God miraculously touches in that way, but often it's not. So I'm going to oftentimes struggle with that. So I think that the the evil is, okay, God, I struggle with this evil of of gluttony and looking to food and the ways to do things for me that I shouldn't, and I'm likely to fall into it. So just this constant reminder that I'm in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And God, please protect me. Please keep me safe. When I hit those times, may I remember to come back to you. I may remember to, to, and I I am going to falter. I am going to fall, but God, may I keep coming back to you. I want to land this plane, a little motivation, a little heart, a little passion, I guess let's say it that way. I want to come to Peter. Peter was a friend of Jesus. Peter kind of leads the disciples, the 12. He's kind of the mouthpiece for him. He's kind of the, matter of fact, Jesus even says, Peter, you're going to plant the church. You're going to be the one that's going to start this movement. Peter was a passionate dude, and he spoke before he talked. And, but Peter, Peter was bold. And Peter didn't think small. And I love a story that ha- lands. It lands in Matthew chapter 14. And what happens is Jesus at this point in the story is an absolute rock star. Everyone wants to be around Jesus. The crowds are huge. Jesus in this particular story just feeds 5,000 boys and, and, and men. The text doesn't record the women that were there, so it was probably eight to 10,000 people. Out of nothing, Jesus just kind of, boom, food. So people are clamoring to be close to this guy named Jesus. They, I mean, it's like the place to be. It's like, I want to get there, get my picture, and put it on Facebook because I was with Jesus. I'm going to tweet it out. I was with, I mean, Jesus, everyone wants to be with him. So the event happens, and Jesus, I believe, wants to get away, and Jesus gets away. He does it all. He says, I just want to withdraw and pray. So it's the first thing. Jesus, man, Jesus, the son of God, gets away to pray. How much more should we? So as he gets away, he puts his disciples in a boat and says, hey, guys, head across the lake. I'll, I'll meet you over there. So they head across the lake, and in the middle of, the, of their trip across, they hit a problem. And this is the picks up, and I pick up in the middle of the story. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble, far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. Now, do not miss this. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them. Now, why do I say, why do I highlight that? Do you know what three o'clock is? Our modern world gets this. Eminem sings a song. He raps about it, three o'clock. Matchbox 20, if you like more of a pop music, they sing about it. B.B. King, the first, his first big hit was three o'clock blues. And what was three o'clock blues? It was, a, it was a suicidal lament. Our pop culture, our art, our literature, our books, understand that three o'clock is a term for the bottom of the barrel, the end of the rope. Everything is stacked against me. It is the darkest of dark. It is the hardest hour of the day. Three o'clock. And some of you have been awake at three o'clock and it is lonely and it is scary and it is hard. And at that darkest hour, at three o'clock in the morning, Jesus shows up. And he comes towards them because he cares for them. Now, if you look at their response, walking in the water, when the disciples saw him walking, they were terrified. You're like, whoa, there's a ghost. Now, Peter does something very interesting. So Jesus first speaks to them. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter, Peter called to him. 
And we're talking about prayer. We're titled this whole message, Ask. Another way you could say is Peter, ask him. Peter's going to be bold. He's not going to think small and think safe. He is going to be bold. And he says this, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Now, (laughs) I laugh at this. Peter clearly was just speaking before he was thinking because if it was really a ghost, why wouldn't a ghost just say, hey, yeah, man, get on in and watch him sink. I mean, why does that prove that it's Jesus? I think it proves it because Peter knows Jesus' voice and Peter knows Jesus cares for me. And if it were really, if it were really Jesus, he's going to care for me and he's going to call to me. And he's going to give me the answer that I know that I really want in my heart. So Jesus gives him the answer. Peter gets in the water. And what does Peter do? He walks on water. Kind of isn't cool. No one in human history, I don't think, other than some of the illusionists, can say that they've done that. Walked on water. Now, the text records, his eyes look down. I love the imagery. It physically says in the text, his eyes look down. They, they see the waves. He sees the waves. And he sinks. And Jesus reaches out and grabs him and pulls him up. Why? Because Jesus was there with him. See, when we ask God and talk to him and we risk big and we don't worry about living in our safe little worlds and we step out, we can be assured that when we step out, Jesus will be with us. Because see, some of us don't step out because we think, well, I'm going to fail. I'm going to sink. I'm going to falter. It's going to be hard. You're right. It will. You are absolutely right. Life is not easy. When you risk, you you have the potential to lose. But the cool thing is, is Jesus was there with him. And we all get down and hard on Peter, but here, don't miss this. When Jesus picks him up, it says in the text, they turn to walk back to the boat. Now picture this. When they turn to walk back to the boat, it's Jesus and Peter. And they look back at the boat. What do they see? 11 other men who never got out of the boat. And so we look at this story like, Peter, come on, dude. But 11 guys never got out. Peter, the bold, the courageous, the lion-hearted, speaks before he thinks, ask God. He just asks him, God, you care for me? I'm going to ask you. He steps with him and he walks on the water with Jesus. And the cool thing is, it says when they get back in the boat, it says in the text that they immediately worshiped Jesus. I think Peter probably had a more intimate worship experience than anyone else in that boat because he had fallen and felt the redemptive power of Jesus lift him up in the middle of risk. And he worshiped while he's soaking wet in the boat. I love it. So I'd say the thing I've learned about prayer, if I can impart one thing, and I'm not perfect in this, God cares for you. Put your name in there. God cares for John. God cares for Megan. God cares. Put your name in there. And so then don't insult him with your small thinking and safe living. Get your prayers outside of your world and pray big. Things that you can't do unless he shows up. That's the prayer God is looking for us to call to him on. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I'm going to practice what I preach, and I'm going to pray simple. I pray for two groups of people here. First group are those in the room that don't know you. And I pray that their big, risky prayer this morning would be, God, I believe that you're the son of God. I know I'm a sinner. Come and save me. In the name of Jesus. And God, for those that are believers in Jesus here, that have been walking with Jesus, that know that they're children of God, may they deep in their gut know that you are for them, that you love them, 
And God, may they, may they pray bold prayers, vulnerably step into the throne room and talk to their loving heavenly father. And God, how exciting it is to watch those prayers answered and to walk with you on that journey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.